So I'd like to start this sermon a minute with a short video, if you could please put that up. You know, what, what do you do? It's always very difficult to know what to say. Because if I say to you that I'm a reverend, which I am, that conjures up certain images in people's minds as to what I might be. So I like to be a little bit creative in telling people what I do. I sat next to this lady on an aeroplane at Heathrow Airport. And I said, hello. And she said, well, hello. And I said, where are you going? And she says, I'm going to Singapore. Then she said to me, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Australia. I said, what do you do? So she told me. Then she said, what do you do? And I said, well, <laughs> I work for a global enterprise. She said, do you? I said, yes, I do. I said, we've got outlets in nearly every country of the world. She said, have you? I said, yes, we have. I said, we've got hospitals and hospices and homeless shelters. I said, we do marriage work. We've got orphanages. We've got feeding programs, educational programs. I said, we do all sorts of justice and reconciliation things. I said, basically, we look after people from birth to death and we deal in the area of behavioral alteration. <laughs> She went, wow! <laughs> and it was so loud, her wow, loads of people turned around and looked at us. She says, what's it called? <laughs> I said, it's called the church. <laughs> If we are a follower of Jesus, wow. then we are part of a global That's enterprise. Right. But not only is it global, it's intergalactic because it includes everyone that's gone before us. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that a lovely explanation of the church you know if you want to check out this video feel free to email me and I can send you the link but it's wonderful when we hear that we think yeah I get to be a part of that because that's how the church should be that's how the church could be and sometimes that's how the church really is and sometimes that's how it's not Right? Sometimes the church is just not the way that it needs to be. And this morning, I want to talk about how sometimes the church actually has a really bad image problem because of how people understand it. There's a book that was written some years ago called Unchristian, based on some studies, what a new generation really thinks about Christianity and why it matters by David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons. And I just want to read the opening paragraphs from it. He says this, Christianity has an image problem. If you've lived in America for very long, and I would say this is true of Canada too, I doubt this surprises you. But it brings up important questions. Just what exactly do people think about Christians and Christianity? Why do these perceptions exist? 
Obviously, people believe their views are accurate, otherwise they would disavow them. But do their perceptions reflect reality? And why do people's perceptions matter? Should they matter to Christ followers? I have spent the last three years studying these questions through extensive interviews and research. You may be astonished to learn just how significant the dilemma is and how the negative perceptions that your friends, neighbors, and colleagues have of Christianity will shape your life and our culture in the years to come. Our research shows that many of those outside of Christianity, especially younger adults, have little trust in the Christian faith, and esteem for the lifestyle of Christ followers is quickly fading among outsiders. They admit their emotional and intellectual barriers go up when they are around Christians, and they reject Jesus because they feel rejected by Christians. I will describe how and why this is happening later in this book, but for the moment, think about what this means. It changes the tenor of people's discussions about Christianity. It alters their willingness to commit their lives to Jesus. And a little later in the book, he, he writes this. We, as the church, have become famous for what we oppose rather than who we are for. So with that, I want to invite us into two passages this morning. Luke 4, 16 through 30, and Luke 7, 18 to 23. And don't worry, there's a good word for us today. So let us read these words. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian 
All the people of the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. And then over to chapter 7, verse 18. John's disciples, that is John the Baptist, John's disciples told him all about these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So here we meet Jesus. And believe it or not, in different times of his ministry, Jesus too had an image problem. Do you notice in chapter 4, he's in his hometown. He's in the synagogue, he reads the scriptures, and at first the townspeople are with him. Oh, he's very gracious. Is this really Joseph's son? And then he starts saying some things that they don't like. And what they don't like about it, remember he talks about Elijah and Elisha? Well, he's reminding them of a time when Israel was unfaithful. And when Israel was unfaithful, God did not work within Israel. He worked outside of Israel. And they were not too impressed that Jesus was highlighting that with them. So they got very angry. They also got angry because he's making these grand proclamations of life being changed. That passage he talks in Isaiah is about the year of Jubilee when everything will be turned upside right. But they're still in the Roman Empire. They're still under exile and oppression. What is he talking about? So they're angry. But what's real, and you, maybe you can understand it, because these are his townspeople, they don't know it. But then in chapter 7, we see John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who when he first saw Jesus, said, this is the guy, and didn't want to baptize Jesus because he, was great, he saw him as greater than himself. He was there when the dove came down and the voice from heaven said, well done, you know, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And now it is John who's sending his disciples to Jesus saying, are you really the one? We're not so sure about this. In fact, Luke has that question written in the story twice. John says to his disciples, ask him, is he really the one? And the disciples say to Jesus, are you really the one? I mean, his own cousin, the, his own forerunner is questioning Christ's identity. Christ has an image problem. And the people are asking, who are you? Well, maybe in your life, you've had that kind of relationship with God, with Jesus. Maybe you grew up in the Christian faith. And life was going along tickety-boo. You figure, if I'm a good Christian, I go to church, I do the right things, raise my kids in the right way, and then something, boom, happens. Death, pain, a diagnosis of cancer, a loss of job, a global pandemic. And we say, who are you, Jesus? 
you really the one? Are you really the Messiah? But then there's this other image problem we need to look at, and that's the image problem of the church. Even those of us who say, yes, we believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the one that God has sent. We're being told in this book and from what we experience that there is this crisis of faith that is much bigger. And the image problem isn't with Jesus, it's with us. There's a study out there called hemorrhaging faith. That word hemorrhaging is not a nice word. And it's about young adults who are leaving not only the church, but even more importantly, leaving the faith. In the U.S., as we know, Christianity is often mixed into politics and power in very unhealthy ways. And it has turned off many people, especially young adults, to Christianity. And in Canada, maybe we don't have that kind of dynamic, but we live in a time of increasing secularization. Now, don't get me wrong, there are some denominations that are doing well. There are some churches and faith groups that are growing. But more often than not, in our culture at large, there's an ambivalence to church, isn't there? There's an ambivalence to Christianity. It's one option of many. And why would I really join it? Because, you know, then I have to be in this community. On Sunday mornings, I want my cup of coffee and my newspaper. Why would I come? Now, you might say, well, that's all out there. You know, that's not such a big deal. But it is a big deal because it's impacting us here in the Christian Reformed Church. There was a, a, a study done some years ago when Resonate was still home mission, so it's a few years back, where they did this st- uh, study of the Christian Reformed Church and, and churches and how the growth levels were going. And this is pre-COVID, so I have no idea. I hope they do a study of this once we get a little further through the pandemic. But at that time, 5% of Christian Reformed churches were outwardly growing. They were really thriving and flourishing, getting people in that were non-Christians, really affecting the neighborhood. 10% of churches had some growth. Some of the growth because of community, some of the growth because maybe of their demographic, where they were as a church, people coming in, other believers. 60% of Christian Reformed churches were status quo, neither growing nor shrinking. 10% were struggling, and 5% they predicted we'd be gone in one to five years. Now, I don't know Exeter CRC very well, and maybe you say to yourselves, hey, well, maybe we're not one of the growing churches, but we're at least in the status quo. But there's a problem, friends, with the status quo, because if we keep doing what we're doing, we'll keep getting what we're getting, right? And often when we do status quo, we default. We default to unhealthy ways of being and unhealthy ways of showing up, and we do not grow, and we do not thrive. How do we address this current crisis? Part of the reason that the SoCo Beach Project was birthed, and also because it's attracting so much support, is because people know this is a problem, particularly with our young adults. How do we address it? What is our way forward, especially in terms of discipleship? And back to our passage, what is the good news for us this morning? Well, what we see in this passage and all that precedes it is that God is totally in the image restoration business. That's who God is. We see that God in the Old Testament calls the people of Israel to their current reality. 
right? Like I'm doing with us this morning. You might be like, why did we ask her to come? But these prophets came to Israel telling them through, you know, the word of the Lord, you're not seeing, you're not hearing, you're not fulfilling its purpose. Remember, Israel was supposed to be blessed in order to be a blessing. They were supposed to be the image of Yahweh to the rest of the nations. So all the rest of the nations would say, we want what they want, they have. That was the whole idea. But they instead became dead in their disobedience, so dead that God even allowed them into exile. But God doesn't leave them there. In fact, he starts with Israel first, his own people, to bring restoration and healing to them first so they in turn can be this image of God to the rest of the world. He wants to open their eyes to his heart of compassion, his ears to the good news of shalom, healing them of their disease of disobedience and raising them up, even in exile, to be his people. And how does he do it? Well, eventually we know it's about Christ. And so Christ comes on the scene as this new image bearer, right? As the way we're supposed to be. And his ultimate goal is he begins with the transformation with Israel, right? When he comes during his three years of ministry, which really isn't long if you think about it, he sticks with Israel. He chooses 12 disciples, and we know that's symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel, because he does this to show he's building a new Israel. And he does this work primarily through his ministry and proclamation to his own people. But Christ doesn't want to end there. We know from the rest of scripture that Christ's goal is audacious and big, ultimate restoration of all things. And Jesus shows this in his ministry. That's what he says to John when John says, are you really the guy, Jesus? Jesus says, doesn't say, don't just believe my words. Look at my actions. People are being healed. The dead are being raised. The good news is being proclaimed to the poor. So there's this integrity to who Jesus is, that he not only says things, but he does things without pomp and circumstance, real actions of release and freedom and healing, an image that has substance. We often don't like to talk about image because it feels so flat, but this is image with substance. And we see it even more so in his crucifixion and resurrection, which is all about decisive restoration, his death taking on all sin and brokenness and oppression, his resurrection inaugurating a new era, a new reality of shalom, of that year of jubilee, his resurrection being the deposit on the resurrection life promised to us. And then we see this picked up by the early church. You know those stories of the early church where they just have thousands come in? Can you imagine if Exeter did some sort of, you did some sort of service and suddenly 3,000 people came to the Lord? Like, isn't that mind-blowing? Well, the Holy Spirit, of course, was at work. But part of the reason the early church was so attractive was because of how it lived its life, the image that it had in the Roman Empire. It broke down all barriers, right? Socioeconomic barriers, gender barriers, racial barriers, right? They, they had never seen anything like this before. It was a radical new community within Rome. They had a ministry not only of words, but of also of action. They proclaimed the good news of Christ as Savior and Lord. And, friends, they were agents of shalom, healing, money offerings, shared wealth, community, food together, 
all welcome at the table. And of course, they were anointed with the Holy Spirit so that they could be transformed into the new Israel and empowered to be the ambassadors of Christ's big, bold picture, his image of what it is to be the kingdom of God. And that's the good news. The story didn't end there with the early church. We're part of that church now and here today. Christ is inviting us into the restoration of our image as Christians and as the church. And friends, it begins with us. So often we can look out there. Well, if only that person were a better Christian. Only if that church didn't do this. If only if it weren't like that in the States. But friends, we need to start with the log in our own eyes. We can't be the agents of change until we are in the journey of change. I know you as a church did some years ago a bit of Ritter and faith walking. Our church did that as well. I'm still involved in faith walking because I remember Jim Harrington, the guy who was one of the key mentors, he sat, he turned to us pastors. This was before the teens came. And the one day he turned and he said, he's this wonderful Texas accent. I'm not going to do it very well, but he says, I want to grab each one of you by the arm and look you in the eyes and say, you are the biggest obstacle to transformation in your church. And I was, I was laughing and crying at the same time. Now, I do not want you to go up to Kevin and tell him that he's the biggest obstacle to transformation as church. What he's saying is each of us are. It begins with us, the hard work of spiritual awareness and assessment. Where am I deaf and blind and sick and oppressed by sin? You know, I joke a little bit that I started the SoCo Beach Project, not for the young adults, but for me. Because I need to keep being discipled. I need to keep learning. And, and this summer when people ask me, oh, how was it? It was amazing. But they say, what was hard about it? I said, me. I was the hard part about it. Where we had to do all this pivoting. And there were times my anxiety would get high. And I wouldn't show up well. And, you know, the young adults who are struggling through things. And I'd come home to my husband Kelly and say, please help me manage myself better because it was about me. And that's where transformation, that's where discipleship starts with us. But then, but it doesn't stop there. Then we get to be wounded healers. Without, with Christ's transformation comes compassion, comes awareness and healing of our own sins so that we are on a mission of mercy. Christ working his power through our weakness, right? And then Christ empowers us in the restoration business so that we become anointed with compassion and power, keeping in step with the world's brokenness like Christ did. One commentator, John McLaren, says this, No person will ever do much for the world whose ears have not been opened to hear its sad music. We are sent and anointed to go into dark, painful places. And we are released from all forms of oppression, economic, physical, political, spiritual relationship. We are called to bring love where love is not. I don't know where I got that phrase from, but it's gold. Bring love where love is not. Love, mercy, healing. Those are the true images of the kingdom of God. We are in the image business, people, but an image that has substance and that points back to the glory of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. We are called to have integrity in both word and action, not being superheroes of the faith. 
Those young adults that hung out with me this summer, so the seven, they weren't looking for me to be a superhero because I sure am not. But they were looking for a consistent character of compassion and of justice and mercy. And that's how we reestablish our relevancy and our traction in society because then we become the new Israel. And the SoCo Beach Project, that, that's, what, that's what drives my passion for this ministry, is I want these young adults to see how big and broad and deep and robust the kingdom of God can be. I want them to see that when you take risks for Jesus, he does amazing things. Like this church building, who would have thought that about a year or so ago, starting a new ministry, that we could even think about buying a church building? You know what happened on, let's see, what day is it today? They all blur together. On Thursday, Thursday or Friday, I sent out an appeal because we need to get money for this church building. And then I got two, two in that day, I got one party offering a $100,000 interest-free loan. And I got another party, we, not I didn't, God did, sorry, got a donation of $100,000. That's when we step out in faith when we are people of integrity, when we need to show our young people this stuff, not always all the big stuff, but we need to show them that this is the kingdom that they get to be part of. That's what will bring them into the fold, not just to be good church people, but to be bold disciples who are living out these, these lives uh, out on the edges for the kingdom of God. This is a wake-up call this morning to us, and I hope it's also a word of encouragement for us. We are losing people due to our image problem. But friends, it is not about success or polished worship. I don't want you again to go back to, you know, Kevin and to your council and say, we got to change this. We get, if we only we had a nice building, well, you guys have a really nice building. If only we had a better worship team. Actually, you got a really good worship team. But, you know, like, it's not about programs. It's about integrity. It's about authenticity. It's about community. It's about partnership. That's what the world is looking for, especially our young adults. They don't need more bling. They get enough of it everywhere else. They need authentic community where they see real people, broken people, doing the best that they can, being gracious one, with one another, even when it gets messy. So the good news is be encouraged because God is at work. And I understand that God is at work here in Exeter CRC. There are some things you are doing really well. We have a hard time as CRC people because you're not supposed to pat yourself on the back. But we need to celebrate when we see God at work. You are connecting with other churches. I understand you do the Bethlehem drive-by and drive-in together. You, you pray together. You have community partners around food concerns, the Huron County Food Distribution Center, the food bank, and the community table. Well done! That's the kind of stuff you want to be about. Re that way you will re regain credibility and a voice at the table. What in Christ are we doing right? That's why I come to you this morning with the SoCo Beach Project. I had one person say, this has been a bright light in the midst of COVID. How is this possible that it even happened during COVID? Well, it's Jesus Christ showing his kingdom, showing young adults that the church cares enough about them to make something like this happen. We are the new Israel. Friends, we need to dream big. So what is Christ's big, bold dream of discipleship for you in your neighborhood, at your school, 
in your workplaces, in your third places? What is that? We, and we don't do it alone. What is it for us, especially in partnership with the larger community? There's no favors to Christ and to his kingdom if you stay timid and scared. The face and the voice and the image of the church has to change, not for our sakes, but for the sake of the world and for the sake of Christ's kingdom. We are the united with his spirit. We have that same spirit as the early church. So let us go big or go home. And all God's people say,